uh, to grasp the mighty truth of the resurrection. It's hard for us to take it in, Lord, um, and, and yet we can. You have made the gospel, Lord, um, a message that we can receive and we can understand, and I pray we would. It's a massive truth, Lord, that Jesus is alive this morning, and yet by faith we can grasp onto it. And so as we come to your word, Lord, uh, I pray that you would convince us, God, from the truth of your scriptures that Jesus is alive as we are alive right now and that he is alive forevermore. And I pray, God, that we would put our hope in him this morning and that if we put hope in anything else, we would take that hope away and that we would put it all at the feet of Jesus, that we would bank everything on the resurrected Lord and on nothing else. Convince us of this from your Bible this morning, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you can have a seat. We are in John chapter 20, so if you have a Bible, uh, I want to invite you to open there. If you do not have a Bible with you, we will have the uh, Scripture on the screen, so uh, don't fret. And as you are turning there, uh, let me tell you uh, a little bit of a story. So around 1930, there was an old Russian Bolshevik whose name was Nikolai Bukharin. And he was given a job to go from Moscow to Kiev. So he was to travel from, from Moscow to Kiev. And when he got there, there was going to be a giant assembly of people. And he was to stand up and talk to them for an hour. His subject matter is going to be atheism. So he, he gets there. And for an hour, he stands on this platform in front of a bunch of Russian Orthodox believers. And he lobs grenade after grenade at the Christian faith. Grenade after grenade at the Bible. And he is telling the crowd, essentially, you need to be done with this Christianity business. You need to be done with this business of uh, believing in Jesus. Enough of this already. And he was pushing them to embrace the godless ideologies of communism. So give up on God, give up on faith, give up on Jesus, embrace communism. That was the message from this man uh, in Kiev on that day. And he got done, he finished, he puffed out his chest, and he felt certain he had burned the Christian faith to the ground in Kiev. And so he says, are there any questions? And this one man raises his hand, and he says, may, may I speak? And the old Bolshevik says, sure, sure, you can speak. And so the man gets up, and he walks up to the platform, and the whole assembly hall is just quiet. Right? The, the whole place is pregnant with this expectation of what is going to happen here. So this guy comes up, he climbs up on the platform, and he gets real close to Nikolai Bukharin, this old Bolshevik, face to face with him. And he just says, Christ is risen. And the entire assembly hall at one time goes, he is risen indeed, in chorus. And in that moment, that old Bolshevik knew he had failed at his mission. He talked for an hour, and these people were even more convinced that Christ is alive. I can't imagine that old communist like that very much. This really doesn't have a lot to do with my sermon today, uh, but considering the bravery we're seeing out of the Ukrainians in Kiev in 2022, I thought, you know, it's not the first time, or I guess I should say it's not the last time we saw the Russians march into Kiev and fail at their mission, right? So uh, I figured with that and Easter combined, I had to tell the story. 
And Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. And that's what we're going to see in this passage in John 20 this morning. And as we look at John's account of what happened on that first Easter morning, after Jesus had been crucified and placed in a rich man's tomb, the Bible puts us in a position to ask ourselves a question about faith. In the same way that all those people in that assembly hall had to ask themselves questions about whether or not they agreed with the things they were hearing from the stage, and thankfully they did not, we have to ask ourselves, what does it mean to believe? And do we believe? And can you believe something with your head and not believe it with your heart? Can you believe in the fact of something without having faith in it? Can you learn something that's been taught to you, but you never actually trust in it? One of Jesus' closest friends believes in this passage this morning. And so we are left asking ourselves, do we believe? Do we have a faith that would compel us to walk up to an old communist and to look him in the eye and to say, Christ is risen? A faith that would compel us to abandon the world for the sake of our love for the Lord. A faith that saves. So let me read for us starting in John 20 verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. I think we have to put familiarity aside as we approach this passage. Uh, I know that many of you are, are here because this is what you do. You did this last Sunday as well. It's Sunday, so you are at church. It's the Lord's Day, uh, and so you're here and you're worshiping because that is what you do. Uh, some of you, maybe this is your first time back since COVID, and if that is the case, I want to say to you, welcome back. We are so glad to have you back at church, and uh, I want to say to you, it's time to stay back, all right? It's time for us to commit to the local church once again, to commit to the Lord once again. It's time to stay back and, uh, and to gather with believers each and every Sunday. Uh, others of you, maybe you got invited here by somebody and you are pretty unsure about this whole Christianity thing. In fact, you've been thoroughly weirded out by the singing and a few people raising hands and such already this morning, and you're like, what is with these folks? This is even more weird than maybe I thought it was going to be. I promise you, we're not as weird as you think we are. If you hang around for a little bit, you'll find that out. Um, but no matter which group you fall into... I would imagine you came here with some idea that today on Easter Sunday we were going to talk about the resurrection. I would imagine that growing up uh, near the Bible Belt here in Virginia, you probably have some familiarity with the idea that we believe as Christians that Jesus rose again, that the Bible teaches that Jesus rose again, that he did not remain dead. 
So what that means is as soon as I started reading the passage, you were going, well, you know where this is headed, right? It's the first day of the week. It's that Sunday Easter morning. Uh, they, they ran to the tomb, and what they found there is that the body was gone. I know where this was headed. But understand that from Mary Magdalene, there was utter shock when she came to the tomb of Jesus. She, she didn't run there going, well, maybe he's resurrected. She had just seen her rabbi, her leader, killed unjustly, and so had all of the followers of Jesus. And that injustice would have been an outrage in their hearts. So in, in, in one sense, they would have been angry because they watched the greatest man they had ever known be unjustly tried and killed. And so they would have been angry. And they also would have been sad because this was, this was their friend, Right? Jesus was a friend to them. He was their leader. He was their master, but he was a friend to them. He was gracious and tender and kind to them. There were so many times when the disciples deserved sharp rebukes and they, they got a soft response, right? Uh, they had received so much love from him. So they would have been so sad that he was gone. Sad that, that he had been taken and, and tried and killed and put into this rich man's tomb. And then they also would have been filled with fear. They would have been uh, absolutely terrified at the prospect of the people that killed Jesus coming for them. And, and now those same people are going to kill them. So there's sadness and there's anger and there's fear, but there would not have been an expectation of resurrection. When John tells us Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, she probably wasn't alone. John uh, mentions nobody else, but Matthew, Mark, and Luke all tell us there were other women with Mary. But she's the focus because she seems to be the vocal witness that runs and tells the disciples the body is gone. And again, at no point would resurrection have come through her mind. In verse 2, it says, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb. So this is her conclusion. She believes that Jesus has been taken out of the tomb. She thinks somebody has moved the body. And so after the scene, she lingers at the tomb. Um, if you go and you read, starting in verse 11, after the scene, she's at the tomb, and two angels are there. And the, they say, why are you crying? And she says, they've taken away my Lord. And so even then, even after we're going to see John have a moment of faith, she's still there going, somebody took the body. It's no surprise to us that theft is the first option in her mind. The stealing of bodies from graves was so prevalent in first century Judea that the emperor Claudius made a rule, a law, about 15 years after Jesus' uh, resurrection, that if you defaced a tomb, messed with the ceiling stone in front of a tomb, or you went in there and messed with the body, they would just kill you. So, so even if you just defaced the tomb and didn't even touch the body, the, the punishment was going to be execution. It was capital punishment. So clearly, if a law that uh, harsh, that stringent was made by Claudius, that tells you this was a problem in first century Palestine. And it's a logical conclusion for Mary Magdalene to come to. Somebody stole the body. She goes to the disciples. And um, she goes to, to Peter and the disciple whom Jesus loved. Verse 3 tells us Peter and the disciple whom Jesus loved immediately take off for the tomb. The disciple whom Jesus loved is the way that John refers to himself throughout the gospel that he wrote. So that's John, okay? 
And so Peter and John run for the tomb. John wins the race. Whatever that says about Peter's physical condition, I don't know. But I love how John includes that into the gospel. I got there first. Um, I actually don't think he said that because he was trying to make much of himself or his athletic condition. Uh, I I actually think he says that in humility because you're going to see he's hesitant to go into the tomb. And so I think he wants us to let us know. I got there. I was hesitant. Peter got there after me. He just went right in, okay? I think he's actually praising Peter for his boldness. But uh, Peter, he's got a reputation for this, okay? He shows up. He's like, you haven't gone in. I'm going in. So Peter gets there. He goes all in because that's what Peter does. And he sees the cloths lying there. And in verse 7, it says that he sees the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head. It's separated, folded up, set off to the side. And this folded up cloth, the, the face covering, might be the first real evidence that something supernatural has taken place inside of this tomb. First of all, as, as, as we get into this, I want to say a word about the burial practices of Jewish people. The Egyptians embalmed their dead. The Romans and the Greeks cremated their dead. But the Jewish people did neither of these things. The dead were wrapped in linen cloths, much like the way you would actually swaddle a baby. And then the burial cloths had spices wrapped up into them as well to preserve the body. And then the dead were laid on their backs in the tomb, and there was no coffin or anything like that. The head was not wrapped with the rest of the body. They would wrap it separately, um, sometimes the whole face, but most of the time just the top of the head, and they would leave the face exposed, and the cloth wrapped around the top of the head would kind of resemble a turban. So when John sees the burial clothes lying there, but that head wrap sitting off to the side, neatly folded up, He's not thinking in that moment somebody stole the body because if you steal the body, you're not going to do that. You're not going to unwrap it and then fold that up. You're not going to do all that. He sees this and he goes, something out of the ordinary has occurred here. And you can see why. If you go to John 11, where Jesus resurrects his friend Lazarus from the dead, it says, when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Notice how when Lazarus came out of the grave, he's fully wrapped up, all right? He's, he's still got uh, the swaddle on him, okay? He's still got the linen cloths on his head as well. He needs to be unbound. And that's because Lazarus did not take up his own life. Lazarus did not volunteer for his resurrection. He was dead, and Jesus, in his power, according to the will of the Father, resurrected Lazarus from the dead. Lazarus knew nothing of it until he was stumbling around with linen strips binding him from head to toe. Jesus' body is different. It's gone, and the burial clothes are lying there as if his body passed right through them, and the head covering's folded up, it's laid off to the side, as if somebody set it to the side because it was no longer needed. This doesn't look like a crime scene. This doesn't look like a scene where someone came in and hastily stole the body. It looks like the scene of a miracle. It looks like Jesus' body somehow passed through the burial cloth and then he took his head covering off, he folded it up, and then he rolled the stone away and he left. And that's the conclusion John comes to after he sees the cloths lying there. In verse 8, John tells us that he followed Peter into the tomb and when he saw the scene, he believed. 
The other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in and he saw and he believed. What did he believe? He believed that Jesus rose from the dead. That's what he believed. He sees the empty tomb, steps in, looks at the scene, doesn't need a degree in criminal justice here. He looks at it and he goes, Christ is resurrected. In verse 9, John says, He and the other disciples did not yet understand the scriptures required uh, that the scriptures required that Jesus would rise from the dead. What scripture is he referring to? Maybe it's the words of Isaiah where the prophet says that the Messiah will be crushed, but the Lord will prolong his days. Maybe it's the prophecy from Psalm 16 where God is faithful to ensure that his Holy One will not see decay. Maybe it's Daniel 12.2 where the Bible says that those who sleep in dust shall awake. Some will awake to eternal life. Some will awake to everlasting contempt. But regardless, it's not the first time that John has said that the disciples looked back and understood the Scriptures after Jesus rose from the dead. In John 2, right after Jesus flips over tables in the temple in righteous anger, here's what the Bible says. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. And so after the resurrection, the disciples looked back at the teaching of Christ and the way that he taught the scriptures and the Old Testament scriptures to them and the things that he said to people, and they looked back and they went, oh, he was telling us all along that he was going to resurrect. And when John went into this tomb, he surveyed the situation and he recalled the scriptures and he believed. In fact, you could argue that the Apostle John seems to be the first person in the history of the world to believe that Jesus resurrected on Easter Sunday. The New Testament is mainly written in Greek. The Greek word for believed is pistuo. And it means a whole lot more than just intellectually assenting to the truth of something. It means a lot more than just agreeing to the facts. A lot more than the acknowledgement of the verifiability of something. When John says he believed, that word carries with it trust. It means you believe and you have a trusting confidence in the object of your faith. So John goes in the tomb, looks around, and he puts trusting belief in the fact that Jesus has risen from the dead. His heart goes from the despair, the anger, the sadness, the fear that we talked about earlier. All of that was produced from believing Jesus is dead, but now in this moment, he goes from believing Jesus is dead to believing Jesus is alive. His heart goes from believing hope is lost to believing hope is alive. His heart goes from faithless confusion to faith-filled clarity that Jesus is alive. The sudden sunrise of faith in his heart brought light to the darkness that Good Friday had ushered in. His Lord is alive. And there is now trusting belief in that in the heart of the disciple whom Jesus loved. It reminds me of the story of R.W. Dale. 
R.W. Dale is a famous congregational pastor from Birmingham, England. And one day he was writing an Easter sermon. And the realization that Jesus is really alive, it hit him. Christ alive, I said to myself. Alive. And then I paused. Alive. And then I paused again. Alive. Can that really be true? Living as really as I myself am. I got up and walked about repeating, Christ is living. Christ is living. It was to me a new discovery. I thought that all along I had believed it, but not until that moment did I feel sure about it. I then said, my people shall know it. I shall preach about it again and again until they believe as I do now. What we're talking about with John and what we're talking about with R.W. Dale is much more than just understanding the facts of the story of the Bible. It's much more than just having a doctrinal position on something. It's bigger than just knowing the stuff you're supposed to know. We're talking about a faith that goes beyond all of that. We're talking about a trusting faith where you are literally taking the weight of your soul the weight of your very existence, and you are placing it on the object of your faith. To be Christian, understand this this morning, for whatever you think it is to be Christian, whether you think going to church makes you a Christian, or the fact that you got baptized when you were seven makes you a Christian, even if you haven't lived for Christ since then, Uh, If you think that um, praying makes you a Christian or being a good person makes you a Christian, listen to me. To be Christian is to put the entire weight of your soul on the resurrection. To say, I'm not banking on anything else. I'm not leaning on anything else. The entire weight of my existence, the entire weight of my soul, I'm putting all of it on the fact that Jesus got up out of the grave 2,000 years ago and that he is resurrected and that he is alive now. You're staking your entire life and your entire eternity on that reality that Jesus rose again. We are not talking about saying you're a Christian because that's what you do as an American who lives in the Bible Belt. You know, God and country. We're not talking about saying you're a Christian because that's what your grandmother told you was true, but it really has no impact on your life if you're being honest. We're talking about understanding that the only hope for your soul is that Jesus rose again and then you lean on that empty grave and you lean on the risen Lord to carry you through the minutes of existence you have on this earth until your faith becomes sight. And then he is your life for all of eternity as well. Let me back up a little bit. We're, we, we've kind of been flying real low looking at the resurrection, and, and what I want to do is, is, is get back to 30,000 feet, and I want us to look at the whole story real quick, because I want us to understand why this means so much. First of all, let me tell you, this God that we're worshiping, this God that we have sung to this morning, this God that we have prayed to this morning, this God we're talking about, He is the loving creator and ruler of the world. He has created everything that you see, and He created you. And when He created you, He created you in His image, which means you're different from a tiger, all right? You're different from the cat that lives in your house. You're different from your dog. Just like God creates, He's made you in His image, and you can create. Just like God loves relationally, He has created you to love relationally. 
He's made you in his image. And he placed the first two people in the Garden of Eden. He gave them responsibility. He charged them to work the garden, to rule over it, to subdue it, to multiply in it, to be fruitful. And that's God's design this morning. Understand that. God's design is him in heaven ruling and then people ruling the world according to his instructions. And if they rule the world, if they subdue the world the way that he's told them to, then there will be peace in creation. There will be total peace between God and between man and peace in the world. But we know that's not how things are. Because in the garden, Adam and Eve rejected God. They were told they could have any tree in the garden except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But they ate from that tree, and when they ha- that happened, they became alienated from God. They tried to be like God. They rebelled against God. They ate from that tree, and now they're alienated from God. And when they were separated from God, sin and death entered into the world, and it was no longer Adam's nature to love God. It was now his nature to rebel against God, because he had a sinful nature. And he handed that down to his kids. And they handed that down to their kids. And so a sinful nature and sinfulness has been the trademark of every human generation since the garden. We've rebelled against God. We have made a mess of his world. And God's going to punish that. He will not let us rebel forever. Hebrews 9.27 says, And just as is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. The wages of sin is death. We have to answer to God for our rebellion against Him. He gave us life. He gave us breath. He has given us existence. He has given us the basic necessities of life. He's been so good to us. And we have responded to Him in spiritual treason, in spiritual rebellion, in disregarding Him at every turn. So we must face the prospect that we are guilty before Him. We are deserving of death. Not just death in the natural sense, but in the spiritual sense. We're deserving of eternal hell for breaking the eternal laws of an eternal God. And boy, we would have no Easter if the sermon ended here. But in His great love, God did not just leave us to die in His judgment. This Jesus we've talked about is the Son of God who He sent into the world. And Jesus is like us in the sense that He was fully human, but His birth is different. He was born of a virgin, conceived of the Holy Spirit, which means he was not born with a sin nature like me and you. His birth set him apart from the very start. And then he lived a perfect life, and he was always obedient to his father. He was tempted, but he didn't give in to temptation the way Adam did in the garden. And yet, despite his perfect life, Jesus died on the cross for us. And you know, Jesus said that nobody takes his life from him, that he lays down his life of his own accord. What that means is that Jesus was not a tragic figure who who died at the hands of uh, a bunch of religious elites and Romans who just wanted some peace, and he was just in the wrong place at the wrong time. Actually, his death occurred because he was in the right place at the right time. It was God's timing. God appointed for his son to die. God moved the wheels of history to get His Son to the cross where He was slaughtered for us. You and I owe a debt to God for our sinning. Jesus paid that debt by receiving our judgment on the cross. 
He was your substitute. He died in your place. And that brings us to John 20. The Son of God resurrected, and in doing so, He conquered death for us, and He offers to us new life. When Jesus rose from the dead, He proved that He is who He said He was, the Son of God. And when Jesus rose from the dead, He proved the Father had accepted the sacrifice He made on your behalf. Otherwise, the power of God would not have resurrected Him. And here's what this means. It means that anyone who repents of their sin, repent seems like an old church word, but it's an important church word. It means that we agree with God our sin is evil and we turn away from our sin and we turn toward God in faith. So anyone who repents of their sin and believes in the crucified and resurrected Savior will never be conquered by death. You might die on this earth, but the New Testament merely calls that falling asleep. Because Jesus' resurrection brings a promise that all who believe in Him will also be resurrected and will have eternal life. And I'm going to talk about that more next Sunday. If you want to hear more about your resurrection, be here next week. But the people of God will be with the Lord forever in glory. No, no more battling sin. No more battling sickness. No more battling doubt. No more battling the world. And Jesus is going to be there, the slain but conquering Lamb. But listen to me, this glory cannot be yours by proxy. It can't. You can't just hang around the church and get this glory. You can't just hang around Christians and receive this inheritance. You can't just look back and say, well, Grandma was saved. This glory cannot be yours by information. Simply knowing and understanding the facts of Christianity is not going to usher you in to the kingdom. It's not. I went to Virginia Commonwealth University for five years because that was the plan I was on. So I was there for five years as a religious studies major, and I sat through classes on Islam, and I sat through classes on Zen, uh, Zen Buddhism, I sat through classes on uh, world religions and their ethics, and I also sat through classes on Christianity and, um, and, and church history and stuff taught by the same people, and guess what? None of them believed any of it. They just were interested in religion. They taught it as a matter of fact. They didn't trust in it. This glory is not going to be yours purely by information. This glory cannot be yours by well-wishing. And what I mean by well-wishing is a lot of times people say, well, I'm not religious, but God knows my heart. So you are well-wishing that God will just overlook your sin, think nothing of it, and let you into heaven even though you used none of your breath to praise Him and serve Him. You're right, God does know your heart. That's the problem. It's his knowledge of your heart in your life that puts you in danger of judgment. Well wishing that God will look over your sins is futile because the Bible tells us that's not the sort of God he is. This glory can only be yours by believing. You have to have faith. Like John in the tomb, looking at the scene and experiencing a burst of trusting faith in his soul, you must believe. Pistuo, trusting confidence, the weight of your soul. And the New Testament is crowded with commands that we must believe. We could be here until well after lunch just reading the New Testament commands to believe, but I'll give you five. 
John 3.16, most famous Bible verse in the world. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. If you want eternal life and you don't want to perish, you must believe in Him. Acts 16.31, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Romans 10.9 and 10, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, which means that God will look at you as if you have not sinned. You'll be right with God. And with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Ephesians 2.8, for by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. And then in 1 John 5.4, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. You have to believe. You must believe that Jesus is alive. You must believe that Jesus is alive because he resurrected. And when you do that, when we have trusting faith in the risen Savior, his life becomes our life. 1 John 5.11 says, and this is the testimony that God gave us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Eternal life is in Christ, and when we are in Christ by faith, we have that life. When you believe in the resurrected Savior and you are given eternal life, you have the very life of Christ. And listen, this is huge news for anxious hearts. And I have got to imagine there are anxious hearts in the room this morning. That's if the statistics are true. According to COVID-19 mental disorders collaborators, anxiety disorders rose by over 25% worldwide during the pandemic. That's a big number. That's a big number. 25%. A quarter more of the world is having anxiety issues, mental health issues, that, that wasn't having it before the pandemic. You can see how we got here, right? Two straight years of relentless fear-mongering in the media will take people there. Restrictions from the government that was like yo-yos. We didn't know what was going to happen one day to the next. You're walking in this place. Do I mask here? Do I mask here? Now it's easy. If, if, they, if it's a place where they poke and prod your body, okay, you got to have a mask on, all right? Walmart, you're all right. Nobody's going to poke and prod you there, hopefully. So, The loss of normalcy... I mean, we just lost normalcy for a couple of years there, still trying to get it back. Working from home with no end in sight. Kids not seeing the bottom half of each other's faces in a classroom for almost two years. Economic fallout. You put all that stuff together, man, you start adding it up. The numbers are not going to lie. The solution on the other end of that equation, it's going to bear out. And then you just you, you, you put on all of that just the stuff we're dealing with in life, right? Like cancer didn't say, well, I'll take a couple years off since COVID's got this. Cancer was still wreaking havoc. Wars are still wreaking havoc. Starvation's still happening all over the world. You're still concerned about your bank account and what's going on at work and what's happening with your cousin. All these anxieties don't go away. So you, you add it all up. And we got fearful. 
If you go back and look at what Americans feared the most in 2021, four of the ten are directly related to health and to the pandemic. Number one fear people had in 21, uh, 2021, people they love dying. Number two, dying themselves. What's that tell you? People were scared of death for the last two years. If, if a fear of death was kind of sitting in the back of your mind and, and you were able to push it down in, in 2018 and 2019, it would pop up, hey, you know you're going to die one day. Just I've got things i got to do. I'm not thinking about that right now. In 2020 and 2021, it became harder to push that thought away, didn't it? With all that we're seeing in the news, with all that we're seeing going on around us, when that thought came up, you know, you're going to die one day, you try to push it down, suddenly you couldn't push anymore, and a lot of people are walking around for the last two years scared to death of death. I went through it myself. If you want to hear the full story, you can go back and listen to the sermon I preached about it in August. Happy for you to hear it. Not going to go into much of it there, but I, I spent about four months off and on having regular anxiety attacks. Something I had not experienced previously in my life. I couldn't look at my kids without thinking about their life without me. I couldn't look at my wife without thinking about me being in the ground and her marrying somebody else. Just, I, I couldn't get those things out of my mind. It was a horrible time. Every day felt like 300 days. And if you've ever been in the throes of anxiety and depression, every day feels like 300 days. Here's what I've come to realize. Easter, it frees us from believing that our existence is tied to this present age and this present life. Easter frees us from believing that our existence is tied to these perishable bodies. My life is not tied to my life. And listen to me, your life is not tied to your life. And that sounds weird to say, but the resurrection has made that a reality. My life and my existence is tied to the resurrected Christ who sits at the right hand of the Father this morning. Belief in Him means that though I die, I never die. Belief in Him means that though you die, you never die. I am the resurrection and the life, Jesus said. Whoever believes in Me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in Me shall never die. Satan wants us to believe we've got to cling to all of this. Satan doesn't want you to come and bow down and worship him. That's way too obvious. He's slicker than that. He wants you to bow down and worship all of this. The world, your existence, your ego. I don't have to cling to my functioning organs for peace. I don't have to cling to CT scans I don't have to cling to my family because they can survive without me. The empty tomb exposes all of that for the lie that it is. If we put our faith in Christ, the weight of our soul is leaning on His life and the only one we need to cling to is Jesus. None of that other stuff. We can trust Him with our souls. And if we can do that, then we can trust Him with our families. We can trust them with our friends and our neighbors, whether we're dead or alive. Some of you have walked in this morning incredibly anxious. It could be health. You might be going through similar things as what I explained a moment ago. It could be money. You think your life is tied to your bank account. It could be position. You think your life is tied to 
the place that you hold at work or the place that you hold at church. It might be your family because you can't bear the thought of not having everyone the way you've always had them. It could be what you used to have, the friends you used to have, the way things used to be, the good health you used to have. And you think life is tied to recovering all of that. Listen, Satan is fooling you. He's deceiving you because that's what he does. He is a liar. He is not to be trusted. He's fooling you into believing your life's tied to all these things. And if you think your life is tied to your health or your money, your family, anytime those things are threatened, you just come undone. You come unraveled because you feel like I'm losing my life, but you're not because your life's not tied to any of that. If you believe it's tied to Christ, and He is alive, and He has died, and He has risen, and He has ascended into heaven, and He sits at the right hand of the Father as we speak this morning with scars on His brow and scars on His hands and feet and a scar on His side, but as alive as you and I are at this very moment. Do you believe that? Do you believe that if you have His life, you will never die? Do you believe that if you have His life, though you may lose things of massive importance, you will be just fine because you can never lose him. I want to close by telling you a quick story about one of the most embarrassing days of my life, so you should enjoy this. I was 15 years old. I'd been a Christian for about a year. went with my youth group to this place called Camp Baker. I was really excited for the trip because a girl that I liked was on the trip, all right? And so, you know, the whole way there, we're in the church van, you know, if you were ever a youth group guy, you know what it's like. You've got to flirt in the church van. You know, you've got to work your game in the church van um, best you can. And so I, I'm in there. I really think I'm, I'm something, you know. I'm talking to her the whole way there. And we get there, and they have like a high ropes course and some stuff. Where at the end, they had a, a, a telephone pole that in my mind was probably about 60 feet tall. And they wanted us to climb to the top of it and jump off and grab onto this like circus trapeze looking thing. Okay, and that was it, and then you let go. And you're hooked into, you know, a little carabiner, uh, so, you know, you're, you're trusting the carabiner to hold your weight. Well, I wasn't going to do this. I was like, I'm not getting up on that pole. Ain't no way I'm getting up on that pole, because I don't like heights. But they all razzed me into it. One of the best things about my 30s is that you can't razz me into anything anymore, really. But when I was 15, I could still get razzed, so I was thoroughly razzed into doing this. So I get up on this thing. And I couldn't do it. And the whole youth group's watching me. And I had kind of become a little bit of a leader in the youth group. I felt called into ministry. I was starting to teach. And so they're watching me. And I, I, with every shake of my knees, my ego was dying. You know what I mean? Like I'm just dying up there as a 15-year-old. And I remember standing there and, and people just saying, just jump, just jump. And I couldn't, I couldn't stand up. My knees are shaking and I got this dumb helmet on my head. And I remember looking at the girl and going, well, that's over, you know, as <laughs> tears are streaming down my face. And in the end, I got down. I just got down in defeat. And I remember just quietly riding home, just, just completely emasculated, you know, totally embarrassed by this whole situation. And so... That happens, and um, in the end, here's the reality. I couldn't trust this carabiner to hold my weight. Everybody's going, just trust the carabiner, jump. And I'm going, I don't trust it. And I really believed if I try to jump off this thing, I'm going to die. So I'm not going to do it, and I got down. 
as embarrassing as it was. Some of you are standing on the pole this morning and your knees are knocking and there are tears in your eyes. And this life has taken you down to the brink. You've worn down to the nub. And your, your, your knees are knocking and there's a question here before you this morning. Are you going to jump? Listen to me, you're not trusting a little carabiner. I still wouldn't jump for the record. All right? You're not trusting a carabiner. You're trusting the resurrected Lord of the universe. He will catch your weight. Throw the weight of your soul on him. He will take your weight. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. And as you believe in him, your life will no longer be tied to your life. Your life will be tied to his. And you don't have to live in fear anymore. You don't have to walk around being bullied by fear all the way to the grave. Because every time the bully of fear comes up to you and says, I'm going to knock you right in the mouth. Say, take your best shot. Because my life is tied to the Lord of heaven, the resurrected Savior. And you already took your best shot at him. And you lost. Fear and death and sin and hell and Satan were conquered. Is your life tied to his life? Do you believe? It's the question for you this morning. Are you going to jump? The band's going to come back up. I want to pray for you. And, and as they're coming, just want to say to you real quick, today's the day of salvation. Really easy way for you to reach out to us. If you're like, all right, I, you prayed earlier that we'd be convinced the resurrection is true. I'm convinced. I want eternal life. I don't want to live another day not having faith in Jesus. I want you to email us or text us at connect at seafordbaptist.com and we will get right back in touch with you. All right, we will get back in touch with you. I mean, like, we won't let the day pass. We'll get in touch with you today. We'll talk to you today. Um, or we will set up a time to talk to you today if, if you're not able to talk today. But respond now. You feel the Holy Spirit um, drawing you, wooing you, saying, come to Jesus. Well, come to Jesus. Jump. Send the text. And you don't even have to wait for that. I'm going to pray in just a moment. While I'm praying, you can just right there in your heart just pray to God, tell him you agree with him that your sin is evil and tell him that you were putting your faith in him and ask him for forgiveness of your sins and ask him to come into your life and change you. And then after you, after you pray, text or email us at connect at seafordbaptist.com so we can follow up with you. But it's, it's the time to respond. Um, let's go to the Lord in prayer now and, and let's respond in faith. Father God, I give you praise for your resurrected son, and this morning, God, uh, I pray that if he has spoken to people in this room, that they would listen. And it's as simple as that. I pray they would listen. And, and I pray, God, if they have ears to hear, they would hear, that they would respond in faith, and that they would find uh, that on this Easter, just like my mom's back in 1999, their life is changing forever. Their eternity is changing. Lord, do your work in your people's hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.